The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello and welcome to The Views Room, the podcast of Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Robin Mack and I'm joined by my colleagues here in Hong Kong, uh, Jeff Goldfarb and Pete Sweeney. This episode is part of our annual Breaking Views predictions, where at the end of each year, columnists from around the world will write about what we think will happen in the coming year. So today we'll talk about Hong Kong, a city that all three of us call home, and what's in store for 2020. Pete, I'll start with you first. These anti-government protests, they kicked off in June. They show absolutely no signs of abating. Uh, January 1st, New Year's Day, there was, you know, a fresh, huge rally with, you know, more than a million people coming out to march against the government and supporting demands from free and democratic elections to an independent police inquiry. Pete, you've been looking at this from sort of the lens of Beijing. Can you talk us through you know, what's happening, you know, from their perspective and if and when we can expect any policy changes from them? Well, there, there has been a policy change already, um, a, a fairly important one, possibly. Um, Beijing has, the first head has kind of rolled, as it were, in the apparatus. Beijing has replaced the head of the liaison office, Hong Kong. Um, this is the, the central government's representative who interfaces with the, uh, the administration of, of Chief Executive Carrie Lam. There's been some dissatisfaction, obviously, with the, the way things have played out, and it's, it's kind of unsurprising. The new guy is coming in, has experience in um, as administrating the province of Qinghai, which is home to a large Tibetan population of Tibetan Chinese, um, which has been a, an ethnic relations management problem for China. Um, this guy is coming in, but he has he's not been worked in Hong Kong before, so he's clearly a central party loyalist. He's going to come in and hopefully set things straight. Um, that said, other than that, Beijing has not done a huge amount um, apart from bluster in Hong Kong, and that's because its options aren't that good. Despite all this news in the media or, or speculation in media that the People's Liberation Army might pour across the border and see a crackdown like we saw in Tiananmen Square in 1989, you know, which was sort of fed, to be fair, by uh, state media broadcasting shows of, of, of like the People's Armed Police exercising, doing riot control stuff across the border. But that hasn't happened. That was never really a realistic option. Anybody's been to Hong Kong can see it's not an easy place to drive tanks around in anyways. And it's a political problem. Also, Hong Kong serves as very important market functions, the only hard currency market under Chinese control where Chinese companies can raise funds outside of China's capital controls and raise Hong Kong dollars, which are freely convertible, into other currencies, which they can go and invest in and become part of Global China Inc. Um, in addition, it's a huge channel for foreign direct investment into China and for portfolio flows through the, the stock and bond connect programs that make it easier for institutional investors to trade uh, onshore Chinese stocks and bonds. So for all those reasons, Beijing has, you know, been restrained in so far. But how long that's going to last, I think, is the million-dollar question. Well, I mean, I don't have a million-dollar question, but maybe I have, like, a $20 question. But um, we didn't address it in the predictions, although we, we did write about it a bit last year. I was sort of curious, Robin in particular, and Pete, sort of your views on will Carrie Lam still be the chief executive of Hong Kong come the end of 2020? I mean, there was obviously – she's gotten sort of a pat on the back from Beijing – you know, we don't really know how much would actually change even if she were to go, given the way the system works. But it's a question that has died down quite a bit. And I, but I wonder if it, you know, if that's purposeful and, and maybe 
at some point we see her go? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because when sort of this whole political crisis first started last year, I was pretty sure that Carrie Lam had no political future. She is by far, you know, the most unpopular chief executive to lead Hong Kong. You know, there's no way she could, you know, ride out her full five-year term. She's just two years into it. She's pretty much a lame duck. But now I, I think I'm kind of changing my mind on that just because, you know, there's so much more at stake here. You have sort of this one country, two systems called into question. You can tell that officials sort of prize stability more than anything else. And there is a big question of who will replace her. And it's not clear at all. And I just think it, it would be rocking the boat too much if they just take her out of the, the political system at this point. Yeah, and the formal demands of the protesters have somewhat interestingly, not been explicit that they just want her to quit, right? I mean, a lot of people want her to quit, but the call for democracy, you know, has been more explicit, like, as a natural result of having more electrical influence over the selection of the chief executive, that that would, a byproduct of that would be Carrie Lam's departure. But they don't see Carrie Lam herself, you know, as, as the sole cause or, or, or solution to the problem, right? Even as disliked as she is. No, I think, I mean, I guess the question would be really more that would replacing the chief executive create a little bit of air or space to reach some sort of agreement or compromise on some of the, you know, some of the demands, which which right now would just like you know is almost virtually impossible to do. Um, that's I think the but I, you're right. It doesn't change the complexion of. Well, of I, the, I mean, what's really theory. interesting is the election, the, like the low level elections, these district council council elections, and I think so far what we've seen. I mean, these are not like super influential um, roles, you know, like you know, managing, you know, water supply and like garbage and stuff like that. But like in these recent elections, uh, we saw like the, the pro Beijing party absolutely get swept out of, of 17 out of 18 districts. The only holdout being being my district of, of Landau, <laughs> being the one that's still pro Beijing. But I mean, that seems to have, at least from my impression, has kind of taken some of the steam off of the violence, at least, like the most extreme violence kind of fate, like the MTR, the subway system was getting trashed every night and things, it just really looked apocalyptic. And and that seems to have at least, you know, eased uh, some of the protesters, or at least made them feel like they might have some more influence in the party. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Pete. So these elections, you know, for context and background, they were held in November And these are just very local, uh, you know, neighborhood, you know, community leaders. And, you know, I think it was really interesting for two reasons. Um, The first is that this was a record turnout. Um, So, you know, Hong Kong people, they're mostly known to be very apolitical, very focused on, you know, practical matters and, and making money and business. But then I think the results of this election kind of show that, you know, the silent majority is not quite silent anymore. You know, you had almost 3 million people come out to vote. Um, And the second thing is that, you know, these voters are overwhelmingly against the current government and the pro-Beijing parties. Um, And this will really set the stage for um, more uh, influential elections that's coming up in September, which is for Hong Kong's parliament, known as the Legislative Council. So Hong Kong people, they don't get a vote in terms of who will be the next chief executive, but they do get a vote for... Um, about half of the parliament's seats. Um, so just the way things are going, it really looks like, you know, there's going to be really interesting political deadlock within the parliament if uh, the pro-Beijing parties 
lose like they did in the district uh, council elections. And that could be like a very big headache for Beijing because it would make Hong Kong even less ungovernable from their standpoint and perspective. Yeah, well, I think in a way it's really, really healthy for Beijing as well, though. I mean, the reason they replaced uh, Wang Jimin, at least reportedly, um, the outgoing liaison guy, was because of, you know, allegedly that he was he told them everything was fine and there was that the, the majority of Hong Kongers were were against the protests and, you know, that it was just a question of a few radicals. Um, you know, and that was something that got a lot of play on, on Chinese media, you know, that there's just like these foreign-backed spies funding a few maniacs who are setting everything on fire, but basically, you know, the ordinary Hong Kongers are, are supportive of the police and the government. These elections made that impossible to believe, you know, which in a way, I think, at least help Beijing step back a bit and say, okay, well, we can't just, like, go through with this hard, like, you know, precision firepower tactics of erecting a few people. Like, we have a deep-rooted political problem, and we're going to have to deal with it. I guess the question is, like, you know, are they going to deal with it through more carrot and more stick? Which was interesting, because Carrie Lam, and it goes into kind of the performance of, of the, the stock market and everything. Like, you know, investors are not yet panicking. But, like, Carrie Lam and those, those comments that she had... Uh, that, you know, were, were leaked to Reuters um, that she made privately, you know, seemed to worry quite a lot that Beijing would would basically sit aside or, 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 or not help the, the Hong Kong economy, which is in a recession right now, was not going to move to bail it out. And there might be more negative pressure to come. You kind of wrote about sort of the rise of Shenzhen as part of your predictions. Can you just sort of chat a bit more about, you yeah, know, whether I mean, this or prediction not, is a bit out yeah. there. I'll say that right off the bat. Like, so for years, everybody's saying, well, you know, Hong Kong is, is too ornery, you know, and, and China's going to develop Shanghai. Well, it used to be Shanghai was going to be replacing Hong Kong. You talked to me about it. It's just a question of time, you know, and then it was going to be Shenzhen. And that hasn't happened. Um, there were two spectacular fail, failed attempts to develop like hard currency markets in both of those cities. The Shanghai Free Trade Zone was supposed to have all that, and Shenzhen had the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, and they were supposed to pioneer all the capital account opening boxes that would have allowed this to happen. They floundered. Um, and another experiment in 1992, the B-share market also floundered. So if anybody wants to say, like, whatever you say about Shenzhen is not going to come true, I understand the skepticism. That said, I think that what, from Beijing's perspective, um, they have to start realizing that they lost at least two or three generations of Hong Kongers here. Like wh- whoever used to be pro-Beijing appears to have lost a lot of sympathy um, or at least been kind of sidelined. And the question is, what are they going to do about it? They have to have a hard currency market and they have to worry realistically that Hong Kong unrest is going to be kind of a permanent feature of the political landscape going forward. So one option is for them to try again in Shenzhen. Um, interestingly, Xi Jinping visited Macau recently. There were reports that they're rolling out. I mean, Reuters reported, based on sources, that there's going to be like a new package of financial reforms for Macau. Macau's a casino town, though. I have my doubts about the limits. But they could try again in Shenzhen. It's right on the border with Hong Kong, right? It's got a stock market. It's got some of the hottest, sexiest like Chinese companies are either there and the people who invest in them are there. So you could theoretically uh, ease up border controls, ease up capital controls in some sort of more controlled manner. I mean, that's kind of happening with this whole Greater Bay Area That's the talk, right? right? Yeah, so we're going to make it easier. Hong Kong yeah. with Shenzhen. And- I mean, the wild card here, of course, I think all of that is, is realistic over like 10 years. The wild card, of course, is the court system. The protests, just to remind everybody, were kicked off just by the prospect of having an extradition treaty to Chinese courts and people went bananas. And not just like the, the anti-Beijing radicals, but ordinary business people, you know, are quite nervous about this prospect. There's extremely low trust in the mainland court system. And you need trust in a court system to have a financial market that works well and to attract multinationals. And that's a big challenge. Okay. And I guess, Jeff, I mean, you 
wrote about, I guess, a lot of the uh, financial implications, which apparently there doesn't seem to have been much, you know, in over 2019. But you're predicting that that may not be the case for 2020 and that sort of markets and investors are kind of, you know, it doesn't, the situation doesn't look very well for them. No, I mean, I've been, I mean, I've been surprised at the amount of optimism in Hong Kong through the worst of the violence, for sure. And as you noted before, the violence has sort of, uh, you know, I don't say wound down, but it has certainly ebbed. And I think that's going to give people sort of a, a false sense of security as well, because I would expect the violence at some stage will kick up again. I mean, the, the context is what's surprising here, one of the sort of factors in that if you compare it to previous crises in Hong Kong, right, whether it's in terms of the markets, you know, you've had the Asian, you had the Asian financial crisis back in the late 90s, and then you had the SARS epidemic um, in the early 2000s, which came short after, you know, the markets got creamed here. I mean, the, the, you know, the main benchmark index was down over 50% in both of those instances. Now, the complexion of the main index has changed considerably. Um, it's not as, you know, Hong Kong intensive as it used to be, meaning there aren't as many, like, companies that are as leveraged to Hong Kong. For example, like Tencent, which is a massive Chinese gaming company, is, is a, you know, one of the biggest stocks in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, it is um, the biggest, the biggest stock. So it's not, far, yeah. Right, and so, you know, they, they're not, like, it doesn't really matter what happens in Hong Kong for Tencent stock to move. But even if you look at more local indexes, if you look at specific stocks, they just haven't moved down to the level that we've seen in previous crises. And, you know, you're looking at an economy that, A, is in recession, heavily leveraged to tourism, property, and retail, all of which are, are suffering to, to one degree or another. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, I haven't been able to square in my head why it is that investors are not punishing Hong Kong um, to the degree that they have in the past. The S&P 500, as a comparison, has ha had a really good 2019. So there is some comparative underperformance in Hong Kong. But on the whole, the stocks have held up pretty well. And, you know, that's, there are, there are other, beyond the historical comparison, there are other reasons to, you know, to worry about. Well, I mean, and Hong I'm Kong interested stocks. in what you think about the property sector as well, because, like, there a lot of the, the local companies, I mean, in the local economy, you know, is exposed to, to what is the world's, I believe, still the most expensive real estate yes, it's the market in the world. Affordable. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I live here and my rent is brutal. But, I mean, like, that, that was something that corrected quite severely during the, the in between the Asian financial crisis and, and 2003 when the SARS epidemic hit, I think like from top to bottom lost like 60% of the property index fell, like prices really pancaked. And if that happens again, obviously like a lot of companies with those portfolios, you know, take a hit, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and this seen... is a political football now as well, where like, you know, Beijing and, and is saying, well, we need to get property prices under control. And, but I, I don't know what to make, but like there doesn't seem to have been that much movement in property prices my rent remains quite high yeah well, I mean, we've seen yeah. we've seen some hits in land prices but far less so in terms yeah of i mean so 2019 you're right it's probably you know there was a small dip second half of the year but i mean compared to the start of the year i don't think i think the markets have barely moved in terms of the prices but for sure 2020 there will be some sort of correction it's just a matter of how severe it's going to be. It doesn't seem like it'll be too bad compared to previous property downturns. And that's mostly because there's just too little uh, housing supply in Hong Kong. And because you always have local demand, that will prop up prices to some 
degree. And then you also have, you know, other new factors this time around, like you have less speculators and, you know, stricter mortgage requirements. So it doesn't seem like it's going to be too bad. Well, I think the fundamental demand, we haven't talked about this that much yet, but it impacts the stocks and real estate and everything, is that Hong Kong is more than ever, you know, connected to the mainland economy, which is not doing super great right now, but it's still kind of sputtering along, you know, so I think a lot of this all depends. I mean, a lot of the, the, the fundamental demand is based on, you know, optimism about China or negativity about China yeah, and the Hong trade Kong, war right? As well. Right. So yeah. if the wheels fall off the mainland economy, if the trade war really starts hitting, I mean, this is a port city. It's it's fundamentally connected to providing f- financial services to, to, to Chinese firms. And if, if that all goes poorly, I don't see anything propping up, you know, these these property prices or, or stock values that much yeah, anymore. I mean, well, right? And the third leg of that is, is not just China and what we've seen historically in Hong Kong, but the third leg is the United States, where you know stocks are rolling high, you know, on a ten-year run. They're trading at you know historically um, dangerous multiples, and and you know if the U.S. stock market takes a hit for any reason, I mean Hong Kong will get will get you know, slammed from that as well. So it's just, again, like, I just can't, there's just nothing but real risk. I don't see anything that tells you why Hong Kong stocks have room to run and why they're holding up as well as they have, um, you know, profitability. A lot of these companies is going to be tough. And you have all these major geopolitical factors, highly leveraged to China, which is not doing very well. Um, although obviously they're stimulating the economy there to try and get that prop back up. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a major mystery. I mean, I allow for all the gloom and doom, but just one last thing I'd like to say. I mean, is that I'm still bullish on on Hong Kong just because, you know, like like a house in a good neighborhood, it's it's not substitutable. I mean, there's, I mean, I think Beijing might try to substitute Shenzhen. I I think it might try. I don't. I think it's unlikely to work. I don't think Singapore is a good alternative. I am. You know, I have my questions about the the Chinese economic model, but I do not believe a Lehman moment, an implosion is right around the corner either. Um, you know, in the past, I mean, obviously there, there are black swans out there, you know, good Lord, if this pneumonic, whatever, this, this viral pneumonia comes down and we have another SARS sort of epidemic and Hong Kong, all bets are off. But I mean, like if, if property markets got into a reasonable place, I would, I would buy where I live. Like I like Hong Kong and I think it's, it's still pretty well positioned if it can get through this, this current mess. So on that cautiously optimistic note, um, we will leave it there. And special thanks to our producers, Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out every day on breakingviews.com. Do tune in for the next edition.